All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. You know, John O'Connor has written the books that many people like me want to read. I am the adult in the room, of course, and uh, back in the day I was a dumb kid in the world, still trying to figure out what was going on. I can remember being interviewed, believe it or not, when I was a senior in high school, and uh, I said to the reporter, I go, heck, I, you know, she was asking me something with an opinion of some sort, and I go, heck, I don't even know what I think about Watergate yet. Well, it's a good thing I've been holding that opinion in abeyance for all of these millennia since that day, because I've learned so much more about what happened and what changed the world in the United States of America, if you will, and, and to some extent the world, about the way that people cover stories and the way that we uh, accept the world, understand the world, the political world in our country. And I uh, today's interview is going to blow your mind. If you don't know about this, it's going to just blow your mind. So um, I hasten to add up that... Um, I was never a big Nixon fan because, of course, I grew up watching the Watergate coverage and reading about the Watergate coverage. And, of course, I was supposed to hate Richard Nixon. Of course, that was what I was expected to do. So anyway, um, I consumed the first Woodward and Bernstein books on the Nixon presidency and what happened in Watergate. I watched the Dan Rather reporting from the White House and going toe-to-toe with Ron Ziegler. And and I saw Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, Be Still My Heart, Absolute Babes, uh, Save the World from Richard Nixon in a movie. And my aunt even had Richard Nixon's resignation letter framed in her library. I mean, that was how much antipathy there was toward Richard Nixon. But now, after decades in this business of the media, after a lifetime of watching scandals that only seemed to break in one political direction, the gotcha investigations into the -the fill-in-the-blank Republicans' bad behavior, and we must expose it for all to see, I began to wonder and question about the veracity of the coverage of Watergate, right? I, I just, and mul- multiple times, multiple times I've said on this podcast, I want to do over on 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 Watergate. I, I want somebody to actually go back over the coverage of Watergate. And, 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 and I thought, well, maybe I can do that. Well, heck, thank God I didn't have to because John O'Connor did. And he's written the book, How Water, How the... Postgate, he calls it Postgate, how the Washington Post betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. And so <laughs> there's a lot going on here. We understand that the story of the telling of Watergate informs us uh, framing the news from a particular vantage point, reporting as fact the shocking lies of the Trump-Russia collusion. We see that now. People, People who now see what's going on in the news media and its uh, unholy alliance with the um, intelligence community and that sort of thing, we understand now what happened in Watergate. At least we think we do. So anyway, 
John O'Connor. I've got so much more in my introduction, but I just want to get it get to it with you. And Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened is a book that he wrote along with his podcast, which is absolute essential listening. Well, former federal prosecutor, Deep Throat's attorney. Um, he's here on the Adult in the Room podcast to tell us what he thinks about Watergate. He's written three books, as I said, uh, one of which has to do with Mark Felt and his FBI career. Mark Felt, of course, being Deep Throat. So, John O'Connor, welcome back to the Adult in the Room podcast. Thanks very much. Now, I have to ask you, when did you get to the point where you realized the nation had been lied to about Watergate by the Washington Post? Well, much like you, I went through various uh, twisted transitions as to what I thought about Richard Nixon. So just to let you know, I got out of college in 68, which was a tumultuous year. Uh, I disliked Richard Nixon, voted against him. Uh, as his term went on, I came to admire him more and did not like what was going on on the Democratic side. I was a registered Democrat. So I sort of turned my allegiance to Richard Nixon. At the same time, uh, about to be a federal prosecutor uh, and soon to be one, uh, the burglary happened. And I followed it intently and soon came to believe that Richard Nixon had done wrong. And then when, as I became a prosecutor, I realized that it was in the best interest of the country to get rid of it because I believed what the Washington Post was saying. It seemed to be authoritative and uh, no, no, no doubt about it. And so I actually made a big deal as a prosecutor of telling everybody in my office what I thought, and uh, uh, almost excessively so, because all of us had been appointed by Richard Nixon. Uh, but everyone agreed that he had to go, whether it was reluctantly or joyfully, they agreed he had to go. Uh, and I felt that way, and I knew who Deep Throat was, came into contact with them later on, represented him. And even then, I thought that Richard Nixon was guilty and that the Watergate coverage was the best coverage ever of a political scandal and that subsequent coverage was an exception to that rule. And that's what I always thought. What about yeah. the golden age of Watergate journalism? Why haven't we lived up to that? So now, such a good point. Now, as I get into my new phase of researching Watergate with Deep Throat around and people challenging me on that, and then trying to work with Bob Woodward in the Post in exposing this very unsuccessfully. He did not cooperate. I began to, as I talk about in Postgate, again to have suspicions about what had happened. And lo and behold, over time, I came to the belief, and I talk about it in Postgate, it wasn't until 2009 or so, that I realized that there had been willful uh, misrepresentation in Watergate. I think I'm the only person around who has collected all 3,000 Watergate articles. I have them now. I think they're in my garage. There are a lot in my office, a lot in my garage, but I have them all printed out on paper. Um, and they're very hard to dig up, by the way, interestingly. For oh, some, I don't doubt that for one second. It's like someone has made them very inaccessible. Let's put it that way. But anyway, mm -hmm. in Postgate, I go through the articles. I also go through what everyone else knew at the time, the congressional hearings on, of various cases, not just of Watergate, but for instance, of the 
Earl Silbert, the Watergate prosecutor who was being confirmed. There are other hearings uh, also that go on. There, uh, There's a wealth of material. But what I would tell you, Victoria, is that clearly, as I proved, I think beyond a reasonable doubt, there was absolute fraud in the coverage of Watergate, and I'll talk to you about it. You know, you write in the introduction to your second of your three books, this one called Postgate, how the Washington Post betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and again, today's partisan advocacy journalism. You write the Post's Watergate journalism legacy of partisanship and inevitable deceit by omission has harmed America greatly, but we hope not irreparably. And at the very least, we should understand that our history has been falsely reported by a newspaper that won a Pulitzer Prize to our great societal harm. And we hope our divided country will heal as we struggle to remedy this serious deficiency. Now, so set the table for us. Give us an idea of what was the great societal harm done by Washington Post reporting on Watergate, and what did they do uh, overtly to change the story? Well, first of all, uh, today, every scandal is has a gate attached to it because this was such a a monumental moment in, in history, and everyone would say it changed the course of journalism. Everyone would say Definitely. in journalism school. Unnamed sources. Sure. Uh, and what happened was, uh, because of Watergate reporting, it made journalists, give, gave them political power. They now had the power to affect change and got rid of the most powerful administration, maybe in world history, certainly in American history, as leader of the free world, uh, our country was the ascendant uh, and uh, most dominant power, and yet, and the, this journalism got rid of the president. Now, uh, so people, there's no doubt that people tried to follow this model, but what is the model? The model is not just reporting who, what, when, where, but but making it into a broader narrative, and so. That's fine as far as it goes if the narrative you are spinning is correct and is based on facts. But what happens is any trial lawyer will tell you, if you can get the jury to buy your narrative and then support it only with selected facts, um, you're going to win that jury over if there is no opponent to tell you otherwise. Everyone, every Any lawyer would tell you that. But now what we have is newspapers... Because they have gotten away from who, what, when, where, and more into broad narratives, mm-hmm. then think pieces. Yeah, then you have a different type of uh, journalism. Now, when reporters who young people who became journalists after Watergate were surveyed, they said their major motivation was to change the world. They wanted to reform the world. Well, if you reform the world, you now have a purpose to your reporting, but that purpose goes one way. Right. You're not fulfilling that purpose if you go one way one time and one way the other, or maybe talk about the ambiguities of a situation. Right. No. You have to join a team in order to change the world. There's yeah, no you got to be on the team. Exactly. Ah. And, once and once you're on that team, are you going to report facts that are uh, antithetical to your proposition. 
Mm-hmm. Now, let me tell, let me give a little excuse for the Post in this case in some odd situations that gave rise to this. First of all, the Post, because this was a local crime story, they were the only paper in the country that had a local crime uh, cadre of reporters in Washington, D.C. There were a couple other uh, papers, but they didn't have the staff. The Post had at least two reporters who were embedded with the police. They had a very good local crime uh, beat, and Bob Woodward was one of the young reporters on it who had just joined, and it was considered not a great assignment. But nonetheless, they had a monopoly, and the uh, and, and they had great contacts with local police. They were embedded with local police and also with the local FBI. So they had that advantage. Other papers did not rush in. They did not have local crime uh, reporters. And at the beginning of this, this was a local crime story, so nobody jumped in. So that's one aspect to this. They had a monopoly. That means no one's checking what they do and say. There's no one to say, no, you scooped here, but you forgot this other scoop. Yeah, you you tell the story about that too. There was another newspaper in a difference in Boston, I think it was, that was also a later sort of keeping track of certain aspects of the Watergate story, but it was really the Washington Post that became in control of the canon, the Watergate canon, and you suggest that that was misguided for sure. So we have all been always wondering about why it was that the there was a, a break in at all and the personnel used to do it, and so. Why, in retrospect, was there a break-in at the Watergate Hotel? Well, let me add one more thing, and I'll answer that question. The other thing that is significant here, and this is why I'm going to get into it, is that the Post was joined at the hip with the DNC. The Post, when it was founded in 1877, was proudly founded as the paper of record for the Democratic Party. It remained so with some on-and-off uh, aberrations until 1972, uh, but they shared a general counsel, Joseph Califano, with the DNC. So they really were tied at the hip to the DNC and would not brook any scandal within the DNC. The paper hated Nixon, was a sworn enemy of Nixon. So now this burglary comes. You have burglars that are arrested, one of whom is the security director for the CRP, the Committee to Reelect the President. Another supervisor almost immediately, not a burglar, but a supervisor immediately arrested, was a White House part-time employee, Howard Hunt. So the uh, optics of this were that, well, somehow this is connected to Nixon, and there's a campaign coming out, come up. Somehow it's connected to the campaign. So that's an easy narrative to start out with, and, and most people believe that, as did I, that this has to do, have to do something with the campaign. On the other hand, the public also thought originally it was just a rogue operation, a silly thing that had happened, but connected to the campaign. But let me tell you this, right away, Victoria, the Post was on the scene with an embedded reporter by the name of Alfred Lewis, he was in the room when they were collecting the evidence. Uh, and the next day, another reporter, Eugene Bachisky, had the evidence in his hands as well. Now, what did the Post not report that first day? The Post did not report the part of the office that was the major source of activity 
that part of the office had nothing to do with the DNC. It was actually an affiliated organization, the Association of Democratic Chairmen, which had nothing to do with the campaign. That's number one. And number two, would never have any campaign operation uh, ability. And yet, all the cameras were set up on a desk in that part of the office. That was not reported. That's a key fact. The second thing that that was not reported was that the phone that had been tapped for the two weeks previous, and there had been monitoring for two weeks, was a fellow that was the head of the ADC, a fellow named Spencer Oliver Jr., who was usually absent from his office. Okay, so we knew they knew that right away, that the phone tapped was of Spencer Oliver Jr., those two facts alone would have said, wait a second, this has nothing to do with the campaign. Spencer Oliver Jr., who's usually not around, was a fellow that dealt with Democratic chairman and out-of-town Democratic guests who would use his office. He was usually out of town, and he had a suite of offices for guests. So it was the guests that were being wiretapped, and whatever documents they were seeking was in the, was in the desk of their secretary. On the day of the arrest, at first half hour, as they put the fellows up against the wall to assume the position, one fellow reached into his pocket to grab something, his suit pocket. He was loudly chastised by the arresting officer, get your hand away from there. He wouldn't. He kept reaching. The officer jumped on top of him to grab his arm, and they got into a wrestling match. And the arresting officer was somewhat big fellow, wrestled with this Cuban, uh, former Cuban citizen named Eugenio Martinez, who was extremely strong, and his nickname was Musculito. So Musculito and the big policeman were in a wrestling match, and as the policeman later said, I almost had to break his arm. He got what he had in his hand, and it was a key, a desk key. Within the next week, the FBI found out that the desk key was indeed to the desk of where the cameras had been clamped, to the desk of one Maxie Wells, who was the secretary to Spencer Oliver Jr. So now what do we have? We have the key to that burglary being that desk. We know that right away. We know that is the desk. So does this have anything to do with the campaign? Presumably not. We knew that from the beginning, yet the Post did not report that. Soon it became obvious when the monitor was questioned, the fellow across the street that had been listening for two weeks, and he was never charged. He was an ex-FBI agent, and he later testified eight out of ten people listening to these conversations would assume they're about prostitution. They were what he called, quote, explicitly intimate, unquote, conversations. Now, they knew that right away, and, and the Post knew it, and Califano knew it because he was in contact with the lawyer for this fellow. Mm -hmm. So they knew all along. Califano the was the attorney the for next the Post. Thing they knew, the next thing they knew, right away, around uh, June 21st, the burglaries on June 17th, they knew that uh, Howard Hunt worked part-time for a company called Mullen and Company, a PR mm -hmm. firm, and that it was a PR, it was a cover firm for the CIA. So here we have 
seven people arrested, six of them with strong CIA connections that were involved in the Bay of Pigs, two retired CIA agents, and Musculito, and Musculito was admittedly a present CIA agent. But they said, oh, he wasn't important. He was just keeping tabs on the Cuban community and so forth. They knew that. And yet, um, no one reported that Howard Hunt worked for a cover company. There is a CIA document in which the head of Mullen and Company brags that he had to deal with Bob Woodward to keep Mullen out of the news. So the Post is deliberately not telling us, first, let's go back to all the circumstances showing this was not a campaign operation, to circumstances showing it was about listening to girls, and also the fact that it was highly likely that these folks were working as undercover CIA people. Um, so we have all this, and it goes on and on from there for the rest of the time. Uh, the Post does everything they can to make it look like it is a a Nixon uh, campaign job, which it is not. And even today, 50 years later, Bob Woodward is quoted as saying, oh, it was because Nixon cared too much about winning. He was It was just an irrational, uh, excessive campaign trick to try to make sure he won. Uh, no one in the Oval Office had any idea what had happened here. There's no doubt about that from the tapes that we've listened to. Now, there were some junior White House people that knew this was going on, John Dean, one of them, with giving this thought to this. But the real movers and shakers in the Nixon administration knew nothing about this. So what we have here is we have the Post promoting a false story that this was a campaign operation of Nixon. While they knew differently, hiding the CIA's involvement, and hiding the fact that whatever this was about, even if the White House knew about it, it had nothing to do with the campaign. It had listening. It, it was listening to naughty boys talking to naughty girls. Right. And the CIA was giving that call girl operation cover because they were trying to get some dirt on some of these political players, of which there were Democrats and Republicans, uh, one of whom was named in one of the news reports. That's why John Dean wanted to go in and bug or do something at the DNC, because John Dean's name was on the list of people who was tied to it. But also, they needed the imprimatur of the White House to do this, uh, the CIA did. And so what they did was, if I understand your story correctly, and let's go to a, let's go to our first clip. And it's uh, the author of a book you cite and you speak highly of in your books. It's called Secret Agenda by Jim Haugen. And he said that the CIA was really running an op out of the Oval Office or the White House, the West, the West Wing. So let's, Bryant Gumbel interviews him back in, I think it's 1984. Listen to this, and it's just like, You place an awful lot of responsibility in the CIA's lap. If culpable, how do you explain the fact that they avoided such scrutiny under intense investigation 10, 12 years ago? Well, I think that, for one thing, the press ignored uh, many of the connections between the CIA and the Watergate scandal. Uh, there was a uh, sworn statement available to the, uh, to the media uh, by the CIA's liaison to the National Security Council, uh, which was explicit and said that Howard Hunt, while working at the White House, 
was uh, sending packages of gossip secretly to the CIA's Langley headquarters. Uh, to my knowledge, that was never reported in any newspaper and was quite clearly relevant. While working as a consultant at the White House, Hunt was spying on it for the CIA. Why, why would E. Howard Hunt, person whose name is, uh, you know, is the Watergate name, I mean, of many, uh, why would he be spying on Richard Nixon in the West Wing? Well, because he was a, a CIA agent and he was mainly acting for the CIA. And one of his duties was to get dirt in uh, gossip uh, from the White House, much of it, by the way, of a personal and lascivious nature. In other words, he loved gossip. Now, let's get back to the monitoring of these, this call girl operations. The CIA was protecting the call girl operation. And uh, the call girl operation was run by a woman who went to Maureen and John Dean's wedding, by the way, and was a close friend of Maureen's. And so I'm sure that's how Dean knew about the whole thing. Uh, but remember this, Victoria, here's the key. Um, all these operations by the CIA are illegal under their charter. They could do nothing within the United States. However, and you correctly used the word imprimatur, the CIA wanted the presidential imprimatur on what it did because if they got that, it made what was otherwise illegal, legal. Richard Nixon is often laughed at for saying if the president says it's legal, uh, it, something otherwise illegal becomes legal. That's true if you're talking about national security. If you need to shoot Hitler, that's normally murder. But if the president says we need to do it for national security purposes, it's not illegal. And the, what the CIA wanted was some situation in which the White House seemed to approve of this prostitution taping operation. So then they could say for all time that the White House had approved it. So if 10 years down the line, somehow this thing got uncovered, they could point to uh the, the trail of cash and so forth and so on, and the cleanly, uh, seeming White House approval of this. This was going to get them uh, out of jail for free. This was going to get them uh, safe from any pension loss. Uh, this was a key thing, and it was so important to the CIA that they were threatening murder. Uh, right. Okay, now this is a pivotal point in your book as well, and books as well. And let's go to this scene out of All the President's Men, where they talk about our lives are in danger. People's lives are in danger. Wait a Maybe minute. even ours. What happened to that Justice source of yours? Well, I guess I made the instructions too complicated because he thought I said hang up when I just said hang on. Oh, Jesus. The story is right. Alderman was the fifth name to control that fund, and Sloan would have told the grand jury. Sloan wanted to tell the grand jury. Why didn't he? Because nobody, nobody asked. Nobody asked him. The cover-up had little to do with the break-in. It was to protect covert operations and the covert activities involving the entire U.S. intelligence community. Did Deep Throat say that people's lives are in danger? Yes. What else did he say? He said everyone is involved. Okay. Um, but it turns out it's really the CIA who's involved. Everyone's involved is, but Deep Throat's telling them this. So who's whose life was in danger? Well, first of all, the very next day, uh, 
the so-called sixth burglar of a, a fellow who was helping James McCord, he was poisoned the very next day. And he ended up dying because he had been telling people he's something of a drunk and he'd been telling people he's going to do a tell-all book. He needed some money and he was a wild uh, guy. And the Republicans had already subpoenaed him to give up his records and to testify before the committee because they started to get a hint about this fellow. So he died. And so that's one fellow. The other fellow that had come in out of the cold was the fellow from whom they bought the James and Court had purchased bugs and had sophisticated bugs on order, a fellow by the pseudonym of Michael Stevens. Michael Stevens had come to the FBI in May of 73, talking about how he had been getting threatening phone calls, where he thought his life was in danger. So he went to the FBI for protection. Uh, and that's why Deep Throat went to the garage right after Stevens came forward and started talking about this. James McCord had ordered bugs from him, and bugs that were still on order were to hook up, they were geared to hook up to a satellite, the CIA satellite. Uh, James McCord told him that he was ordering bugs for a CIA operation, showed Stevens a piece of paper that showed that the CIA, where the CIA signed it and said, this is for a CIA operation. Stevens, not wanting to double check, called his own source within the CIA and was assured that this was a legitimate CIA operation. Now, that's when I say the Post betrayed Deep Throat. He gave them the story of a lifetime. You just saw it. Was anything printed then? No. No, nothing was printed in May of 73 that would have blown this open and to say, hey, the CIA was involved to such an extent that they were threatening uh, lives. Now, Jack after, Anderson. Now, exactly. And as uh, that's another guy whose life is threatened was Jack Anderson, who had the knowledge and was threatening to write a, uh, some exposés. But what happens is, is that... Um, uh, Woodward does not reveal these conversations until he can make money off of it in a book and a movie. Mm. When it comes time to really educate the public a year earlier, he didn't publish anything. The Post kept mum on the fact that this A, the CIA was threatening lives. B, they had this uh, testimony from Michael Stevens. C, that um, Lou Russell, the sixth burglar, was poisoned. And um, it turns out there had been a good little piece uh, published by um, the Washington Star News back in the fall of 72 about Lou Russell likely being around uh, at the time, the Watergate at the time of the burglary. So the Star News published it. Nobody paid attention to the article because the Post was doing very dramatic things as a result of Mark Felt's garage meeting, first garage meeting. So the first garage meeting overwhelmed by publicity what uh, the Star News had been publishing at the same time. So nobody paid any attention to this little Star News uh, uh, article. Nobody knew what it meant. Uh, and yet, uh, and actually it was one of my classmates from Notre Dame that published it, a fellow by the name of Pat Collins. It was one of the great scoops of all time, and yet no one paid any attention to it because he had talked to Russell. Uh, so, Russell was 
lurking in the shadows of the building, I believe, but he was certainly lurking in the area, probably to um, curate the take from that desk. In other words, some people in the White House were going to be looking at the take, but before it got to them, the CIA was going to pull out what it wanted and what it thought that it didn't want the White House to get. So he that's what the purpose was of the sixth burglar. Now, if this if if the post who knew about the sixth burglar but didn't publish anything about it, if the public knew that a fellow connected to the CIA with no connection to Nixon was lurking in the building that night and was connected to James McCord, then they would know that he's likely a CIA guy. They'd like it'd be further proof of the CIA involvement. Now the morning after the arrest, let me back up to June 17th. The morning after the arrest, James McCord is going to the arraignment. He has not made a call to the CIA or to anybody by that point. He is approached by one of his friends within the Metropolitan Police Department, this a counterintelligence fellow that knew McCord from his role with the CRP, with the Committee to Reelect the President. McCord told him that this was a CIA job and his boys had gotten caught. Later on, of course, McCord, the CIA decided they weren't going <laughs> to claim presidential authorization. They were going to claim they weren't involved. But at the time, I think McCord thought that they had their defense of a legit, legitimate presidential authorization because the White House, they could say, approved this. So uh, my point is there's plenty of evidence that the CIA was involved uh, both from Michael Stevens, from Lou Russell, and from McCord's mouth himself to a fellow with the Metropolitan Police Department. So it's very clear from my research that none of these facts that were obvious to the Post were credited. No one was the wiser, and as a matter of fact, the Post went out of its way to assure its readers that any claim of CIA involvement was just a nasty trick by Richard Nixon. Now, that seems to have some resonance today. You know, like, for instance, people claiming, for example, that maybe the Russian collusion organ, uh, investigation was just a dirty trick. Uh, you know, that should have been published. Uh, the, the Post knew that, too, that this that all the wit evidence, all the witnesses for the Russian collusion were Russian agents. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I'm digressing here. The fact is, is that they did not publish what they knew about this and about the obvious CIA connections here, the obvious girly connections, and the obvious fact that this was not a campaign operation. Who at the White House approved the uh, break-ins then? There were two of them. There were two of them. I believe, now this is my belief based on the evidence because he has not admitted it, I believe the only person in the White House who knew about this and approved this operation was one John D who was a very lowly, although he had an elevated title of White House counsel, he was really an ele elevated, uh, you know, I don't want to say errand boy, but he was doing the scut work, so to speak. Uh, Don Ehrlichman was leaving behind as he was elevated, so he had a lot of, you know, paper flow type of things and, you know, uh, that he, he gave to John D who came over from the Justice Department. He was one of John Mitchell's political guys. John Dean was the cancer on the presidency, wasn't he? That's right. When he talks about the cancer on the presidency, he was the one. And, and, 
and he was in danger of being exposed, and that's why he was acting as he acted, because he realized the jig was up. No one had paid any attention to John Dean up to that point. But two weeks before the cancer talk, Patrick Gray had highlighted some of the things that Dean had said uh, as likely being false. Dean had told the FBI that Howard Hunt did not have an office in the FBI, in the uh, White House, I'm sorry. But, but the public did not know yet of Dean's involvement. But even in uh, Gordon Liddy's book, uh, he fingers Dean as the fellow who was the one who wanted Liddy, Gordon Liddy, who, uh, to go to the CRP because he wanted, Dean wanted, to start an intelligence operation with the campaign cash. That's what he did with Gordon Liddy, who had been a plumber at the White House. He convinced him to go to the CRP to run a, a counterintelligence operation on Democrats. Well, this is what Dean had in mind. This is my interpretation of the evidence. It's very clear from Liddy's book, what I just told you, that he did have him go to the White House. And it was Dean who tried unsuccessfully, along with Liddy, to get John Mitchell to approve a general counterintelligence operation. Mitchell wouldn't have any of it. Uh, and uh, they ended up going forward without Mitchell's approval after it became apparent in the spring of 1973 that they didn't need Mitchell's approval because they already had budgeted a num uh, an amount of money for security. Uh, so out of the security budget, which Mitchell thought was for uh, to counteract demonstrators outside the uh, outside the convention and that sort of thing, um, they took that money and used it for the Watergate break-in. Um, the the one unsaid thing is, uh, uh, well, you say that Mark Felt, whom you knew was deep throat, and you'd known that for quite some time, you put the pieces together. Uh, he was a patriot. And he was just doing his job and he was a good FBI guy. I'm still sort of coming up short as to how he helped. He fanned the flames. He tried to make the FBI look good. Did he say anything about the CIA? Did he talk about what was really going on? I know in some cases he did. But so how is it that the, the Washington Post basically defamed him? Well, first of all, uh you, you showed the clip of him telling Woodward in May of 73 about the CIA. So I think he told him things before that, uh, although I can't prove it because I don't have, uh, he had no memory and Woodward doesn't have it down in writing, but I, I would be stunned if he didn't tell Woodward about the Mullen being a CIA cover company. He told another reporter, I know that, we have a record that he told Sandy Smith of Time Magazine about this, I'm sure he told Woodward, and Woodward just didn't print it. But um, but but he did. So what he was doing when he went to that first garage meeting, he was upset because the White House was arbitrarily putting restrictions on his investigation. He saw that the FBI's reputation was at stake. He said so to Patrick Gray the first meeting he had after this. He had to make sure that the FBI did not whitewash an investigation. He was going to follow all leads. If the leads didn't go anywhere, fine. That's his job is just to follow leads. He's not there to guarantee one way or the other whether somebody's innocent or guilty. He's an investigator. 
And so the White House restricted the grand jury from hearing evidence about this fairly rinky-dink program called the Dirty Tricks Operation. Now, the Dirty Tricks Operation was by a fellow by the name of Donald Segretti. And, And interestingly, it followed the model of John F. Kennedy, who had a Dirty Tricks Operation with a fellow that all the press knew about and thought was an adorable, cute guy named Dick Tuck. And Dick Tuck performed all sorts of operations that were very humorous, actually, that were dirty tricks. For example, when Nixon had a whistle-stop campaign trip along the caboose of a, of, a, of a train to stop every place and give speeches to the assembled multitudes, he was stopping one place that had a particularly large crowd, started speaking, and the train started pulling away. And Nixon was befuddled. He's trying to give a speech. Well, Dick Tuck had paid the engineer some money to maybe forget the time he was supposed to leave. So that was very funny. The press thought Dick Tuck was very funny. Well, Nixon did the same thing, perhaps with a little bit more Teutonic efficiency. And and so had this young law graduate named Donald Segretti crisscross the nation to sort of put kinks into their opponent's... um, campaigns, mainly primary campaigns, and mainly, by the way, Republicans. I think he kind of messed with Muskie a little bit, but mainly he was taking people like Pete McCloskey, who was a competitor, and he would put up a sign that said, the rally's been changed. It's no longer at one, it's now at four, or it's over at this field and not that field. Um, But Mark felt, I mean, he was so moved by those dirty tricks that he thought there was a nexus between these CIA activities and the uh, White House? I the- uh, Well, yes. Let me give you the logic, Victoria. The logic is this. The Dirty Tricks campaign went right to the White House. It was uh, started by Dwight Chapin, Nixon's close personal aide, and, and Segretti, the head of the Dirty Tricks operation, was paid by Herbert Kalmbach, who was Nixon's personal lawyer, uh, who had some campaign funds and paid off Segretti. Now, Howard Hutt and Gordon Liddy, who were involved as, as the burglary supervisors, had occasionally checked in on Segretti. Now, the irony of it is they were checking in on him to make sure that Segretti was acting, was, was not going to get caught and so forth and was doing things the right way, which is ironic because they were the bad guys. But they had nothing. They were just uh busybodies who were looking in and so felt saw that sometimes Liddy and Hunt looked in on Segretti's operation. So he thought, well, if they're part of the operation, maybe, just maybe, this went up to the White House and was improved by Kombach, Chapin, and Nixon. Okay? As Segretti's dirty tricks were. So there's no doubt that Nixon and his group okay in general a dirty tricks operation in which Segretti was going around doing these they were college pranks at USC uh they called them rat effing and uh Donald Segretti went to USC and he knew how to rat f uh and that's what they were doing uh and so maybe that's bad but it's not really uh does not really rise to anything that you kick somebody out of office for and right I think Segretti pled to a misdemeanor. That's how the prosecutor... That's how dumb it was. That, that, mean, was, that was a misdemeanor. Uh, and so basically, though, 
felt wanted to explore that before the grand jury. If they would have just let him do that, it was a hypothesis. The hypothesis would have turned out not to be so. And all he's doing as an investigator is following a lead and seeing if the lead makes sense or not. Now, he's telling Woodward this because he needs publicity to get pressure on the Justice Department. I have read Felt's memos. He wrote several eloquent, beautiful memos to his higher-ups talking about how we needed to go to the grand jury for Segretti. And he was denied, okay? People just ignored him. So that's why he went to Woodward. Had History would have been changed had these people been smart enough to say, don't bottle up the FBI. They'll take care of this. Felt always thought that Watergate was the result probably of a couple of overeager young lieutenants of Nixon, and he was right. And he, and he tried to get the message to the president through his boss, look, tell the president that if he lets us do this operation, this is before the dirty tricks thing came up, we'll probably get a couple of young lieutenants, and that'll be that. That'll be the end of his worries. So he was a straight guy, but he wanted to make sure that the FBI did its job. He's not out to get Nixon, and as a matter of fact, what he did would have turned out to have been wise and protective of the White House, because the White House then could say, we allowed the FBI to do its job, the FBI did its job, and look, here's what they got. Now, I've told you this was an hypothesis. It turned out not to be true. However, the way Woodward printed it up after the first garage meeting, which lasted for six hours, Woodward didn't understand the connections. Felt was hypothesizing that this was another dirty trick, but it was an hypothesis. He was wanted to go to the grand jury to investigate whether it was true. But when Woodward does the article, the first sentence is, the FBI has established that. So if you look at this, it's a false statement right away. The FBI has established not, gee, the FBI wants, FBI wants to know whether this is true or not. There's a dirty tricks campaign, and he's in, in the FBI wants to know whether or not there's a connection, but he didn't say that. Now, if you're, um, so it's one thing for him not to say months later that the CIA was involved, but now what we've got is, so he underplayed the CIA, didn't play him at all. And when it came time for the White House's um, role, he exaggerated it dishonestly uh, by saying the FBI has established that this was a dirty trick um, run out of the Oval Office. It just wasn't so. Uh, and it was not part of a, 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 quote, widespread campaign of spying and sabotage of electoral opponents, unquote. That's what the claim was, and this was not part of a widespread campaign of spying and sabotage. It was a one-off uh, venture by a silly White House lieutenant, John Dean, a very low, low-level guy with an inflated title, and he was doing it for his own, listen to these words, blind ambition. When he writes the book Blind Ambition, that's what he's talking about. He was blindly ambitious, and he admits in the book that one of the ways to power is to get oppo intelligence. He admits that. He doesn't carry it out and say, this was my operation to get oppo intelligence so that I, John Dean, could get um, up in the White House hierarchy by saying, look at me, I've got a portfolio.
up to this point, if the White House was going to do any awful intelligence, it was the brainchild of H.R. Haldeman. John Dean could not own that. But now he had a campaign that was a separate operation that the White House paid no attention to. Um, uh, and, um, it, and, and so he had campaign cash, and he had an independent campaign organization where Haldeman was not interfering with him. I think Dean let Haldeman's aide, Gordon Strayan, know that he was doing something, but I don't think Haldeman really was involved with the details at all, um, other than just knowing that Dean had... So Dean covered himself by saying, I've got something going over here, but I don't think anybody knew exactly what he was doing. And furthermore, if they did know, they would know that he was doing this for his own personal purposes uh, because there had been an article after two weeks of unsuccessful monitoring, just getting these silly uh, conversations between males and females. Uh, there was an article in the, in the uh, Star News of June 9, 1973, which talked about a call girl operation, including, quote, one lawyer at the White House, unquote. So Dean got the willies thinking that someone knew something that had been leaking something to the papers, and he, they, he wanted to know exactly what was in that desk that might fry him. Uh, that's what I think. Uh, now we're getting a little bit into speculation. Gordon Liddy later on came to the same conclusion. Uh, I think he went a little bit further than I would go. He thought that they were had pictures and might have pictures of Maureen. I think that's speculative. But the point is, from that article, certainly Dean wanted to know what they had on him, if anything, and was looking for those documents in that desk, thus the camera clamps on the desk, and so forth and so on. So, uh, but, but the point is, this had nothing to do with Nixon. And Nixon and his people, to the bitter end, had no idea about this. And as a matter of fact, um, I'm not so sure they ever knew. Uh, and uh, they were, the, the interesting thing is the Post knew far more about Watergate and the whys and wherefores of that burglary than the White House did. The White House was in the dark about the CIA, about the girls, about, about the location of the desk, about the camera clamps, about the key. They had no knowledge of that key. That was in the FBI files. And, and now, now, because the reporters were right there, they clearly would have known, and Eugene Schaffler, who had the wrestling match, was clearly close to the post, and so he would have not had any hesitation to tell the post about it. Um, what he told them, we don't know. We know he was very close to one pro post reporter, uh, I'm trying to think of her name right now, uh, but he was very close to the post, the, uh, this fellow was, and so uh, did the post... Um, uh, hide this? Of course they did. They hide, hid all sorts of information about this. Uh, and uh, we have a reporting that was studiously designed to get Nixon and avoid any mention of either the girls of the CIA or or John Dean, for that matter. Now, how much they knew about John Dean is, is not clear, I will say that. So maybe Dean uh, still was out of the line of fire, but they certainly knew about everything else. Now, let me mention John Dean. In November of 1973, as the White House tapes were being released, he knew that 
on that tape, there would be mention that he mentioned to Ehrlichman by phone that uh, he had taken some materials from from um, Howard Hunt's safe, his, so important. his um, Hermes notebook, so to speak, and that those notebooks had a lot of information about the crime itself and the approvals and that he had destroyed it. So the Post knew by November of 73, because Dean admitted it in open court, that he had destroyed those notebooks. But they spun it in a way that made it look like he was just protecting higher-ups. So the question is, should the Post have known then? By this point, Dean is the guy that's going to slay Nixon. So nobody in any way suggests in the Post that maybe Dean had a motive uh, to hide those records, but they knew about that as well. So the Post had an awful lot of pieces to put together here, and, uh, and they did not put them together, and they deliberately stayed away from them. You, you talk about, in your certainly in your podcast, in your book, uh, books about the fact that the Hermes uh, notebook was one that would have been used as most CIA operatives use them, and that was to keep track of all of the uh, salient facts that he was trying to keep track of, I guess, in, in his post as a spy in the Nixon White House. And for whatever reason, um, because it was in, it was incriminating, uh, in some form or fashion to John Dean and the White House, he took it out and destroyed it. But that doesn't mean that, uh, but that just hid the fact that E. Howard Hunt was a CIA agent. Am I close? Well, it would have hit that, but it also would have hidden, as Howard Hunt mentioned in his book, that would have hinted, that would have said, the reason I think Dean was behind is because Hunt said so. Hunt wrote that one of his principles in, in okay. this was John Dean. <laughs> And and that yeah. the those uh, notebooks would have revealed that. Gotcha. So, oh, so, I, I, excuse me, I have to go get, hit myself with a dumb stick. So, and Magruder also was one of those guys that was helping along. Yes, right, right. Now Magruder is admitted that he was one of the guys that ordered this, but when he needed his get out of jail card free, he blamed John Mitchell because that's the way he was going to get a good deal. Now, today, the Post acknowledges, through Len Downey, and there's a new book out by a guy named Garrett Groff, following up on James Rosen's book, Strongman, about John Mitchell, there is universal agreement that John Mitchell was not involved. Although at the time, everyone accepted on blind faith that Jeb Magruder's testimony, which seemed very shaky at the time, was true. That is to say that John Mitchell had ordered this. He hadn't. But he and Dean made their own deal. He protected Dean. He went after Mitchell to get out of jail free. Uh, it all worked out wonderfully for both of them. So that, But I always thought at the time that the case against Mitchell from Magruder was incredibly, incredibly weak. And there's all kinds of evidence to support that in the process. Of he had to be. He had to be prosecuted. He had to be found guilty. Naturally, he was with Evil Nixon. He was his good buddy and an aide de camp, if you will. But you know, have you read that Goff book yet, or Groff? Yes, Gar- yes I have. It is we a have a soundbite. 
It's an essentially an apology for the post view of things. And here's what <laughs> Groff says. Groff says, gee, now that we know about John, John Mitchell not being involved, we don't know who ordered the burglary. But gee whiz, it's too late. You know, people have died. The evidence is um, gone. Yes. Uh, we're just going to have to live without that. But he came up with some other, he came up with one more other little takeaway. We have a soundbite of that because I was going to have you sort of riff on that. Um, and I'll let you continue in just a second. And let's listen to that soundbite uh, because he finds other lessons besides anything having to do with Watergate in, in this soundbite. You mentioned the criminality of, of Richard Nixon. Um, I was struck I, because I've seen you say that after all this time you spent studying Nixon, that you were taken by the similarities and the contrast with former President Trump. Yeah, as we reckon with the abuses of the Nixon years, the scandals of the Trump administration, and of course, the two impeachments that Donald Trump uh, went through uh, as president and just after his presidency. And in many ways, you know, the things that worked in 1972, 1973, 1974 didn't work during the Trump years. Um, and it's worth, I think, thinking about why that happened. And there's a lot that we can learn about how Washington doesn't work today by going back and looking at the Nixon years. I mean, talk about revising history. Thank you, Judy Woodruff. Eh, get rid of her. Um, <laughs> so uh, it really didn't, you know, it was, uh, well, we're revising history. Um, and and uh, it has something to do with Donald Trump, and it makes him look even worse than he's evil, too. Okay. Here's, here's what they're saying. They're saying what didn't work was this whole idea of Watergating Trump. They, they realized that it was, isn't so easy today to have everybody sort of blindly accept uh, these uh, narratives because people are sick of them, because they know they're— uh, they're like the Russian collusion narrative. They're often just sort of made up and and and, and fantastical, uh, and so that's why this didn't work against uh, Trump. Uh, and and so we could not man. What he's really saying is we could not manufacture a scandal like we did back in the good old days when we had a bunch of gullible, good faith Americans believing what the newspapers wrote, uh, and we we can no longer. Uh, draw on the reservoir of goodwill of the media, which had goodwill back in the days of Walter Cronkite, who, what, when, where, Edward R. Murrow. Th these guys may have been left of center, but they stuck with their craft and they did what they should, which was report the news. And you can't blame anybody for being right, left, or center, but do your job. But now, uh, Groff is saying people aren't doing their job. The uh, ironic thing is, is that the Post, Len Downey, the longtime executive editor, now retired, reviewed uh, Groff's book the moment it was published, clearly by prearrangement, and they sung together like the choir. And, and uh, Downey praises the fact that Groff says, we can't tell who ordered the break-in. Well, think about it. If you get into who did order the break-in, now that they even admit that John Mitchell didn't, somebody had to tell Jim Magruder to tell Gordon Liddy to break in. Now, if it's not John Mitchell, the only other person that Magruder was in touch with was John Dean. And if John Dean ordered it, 
Now it's an entirely different kettle of fish. Now, all of a sudden, we have someone who's not really, he'd never met Nixon, Dean hadn't. He was not a big guy. And, and why is he ordering this? And you put it together with all the other evidence, and all of a sudden you say, wait a second, it does make a difference who ordered this, because if Dean ordered it, it wasn't for a campaign. He had nothing to do with the campaign. He saw some cash over there, but he was in the White House. He had nothing to do with the campaign. And he's using that cash just to run his own Dean intelligence operation, as he admits he wanted in, in blind ambition. He doesn't admit that he ran this operation in blind ambition, but he admits he wanted oppo dirt. So, uh, so, so clearly um, Dean was involved. But what's interesting is that the Post doesn't want anybody to further look into this question. Oh, uh, everyone's dead now. Well, if that's the case, why are we still writing about Julius Caesar? You know, if if basically history ends when people die, you know. Now, John Dean, as far as I know, is still a live human being. I am. And uh, apparently Garrett Groff and um, uh, company uh, do not, uh, including Glenn Downey, do not want to talk to me uh, because I would tell them some things and give them some questions and facts that they could um, get to the fact of who ordered this. It's pretty clear who ordered this uh, and whose idea it was and whose benefit, as we say, qui bono, who benefited from this uh, second burglary. And it wasn't anybody in the White House other than maybe John Dean, who had a clear motive. Uh, John Dean, that Friday before the order came in, had asked the prosecutor in, a, in the related... Um, uh, prostitution case. He had the pros the uh, editor or the uh, prosecutor come over to the White House with the evidence, and part of the evidence was his address books. And in those address books, there were five five mentions of John Dean's live-in girlfriend, Maureen. So that Friday, he had the evidence. He showed he was shown the evidence that Maureen Dean was in there. He had an an article in the Star News that said that. There was, quote, one lawyer at the White House involved in a call girl operation. And there was a call girl operation that was being investigated. And the article was about this one that the prosecutor had indicted. So Dean had every motive to go in there is what I'm saying. That's that's all I'm doing is establishing motive. The following Monday after that Friday, uh, Gordon Liddy was ordered in. He was incredulous because he thought these these things had no campaign value. The DNC had no campaign opera, uh, information at all. Larry O'Brien, the head of the DNC, was not even in the in the state at the time. Uh, he was not around. There was nothing of value there. They had no information. There had been no convention yet, no nominee yet, even though George McGovern looked like the putative nominee. So we put all this together, and it's very clear that this thing had nothing to do with the White House. It had nothing to do with uh, with the uh, I mean the upper parts of the White House, not the low level guys like Dean, and um, and it was not a campaign operation. So what we have is we have an historical event that we're still talking about today. Uh, everything is a gate. We'll talk about it again on the fiftieth anniversary. We're coming up on the fiftieth anniversary of the um, Saturday Night Massacre. 
where incidentally my father's law partner for whom I interned was one of the massacrees. Uh, so this is still with us. This is still with us. And it was, it's very little understood, but it was the start of partisan journalism that uh, was meant uh, to be a weapon against the other side of the political fence. And that's the way it's been used ever since then. Uh, when Trump was elected, I have a source at a major journalism grad school that said his dean assured him, don't worry, we're going to Watergate him. And that was what they tried to do with the Russian collusion investigation. That was their Watergate investigation. We're going to Watergate him. So people understand that this is a weapon. Uh, people wait on pins and needles for that next surge of excitement about slaying the evil victim, and we can all uh, circle around the campfire and whoop it up uh, 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 over our uh, a slain enemy, which is what, what we're trying to do. And it just is so terrible because we're not dealing, we're not acting as adults. We're not acting as a an adult society with some maturity and sense of justice and fairness that's gone out the window. And so you don't get underlying facts. You get broad narratives. Uh, I'll digress a little bit. Do you see any narrative today in which people talk about just the basics, just the basics of the of climate change? No. <laughs> no. Ask somebody about the science. They'll never be able to tell you. Because no, it's just assumed. It's received wisdom. Right. And the very basis of it is very easy to talk about. And now the, the broader question, is there any amplification of the modest effect of CO2? But nobody's told what the modest effect of CO2 is with no amplification. And that the broad question is, is there amplification? My only point is, is that, that those basic facts are not being talked about. Rather, you have this broad overall narrative about climate change and the evil people that are causing it, and it's these evil industrials that are spewing stuff into the environment. Uh, and so we have chosen narratives of conservative evil over just reporting the facts so that the people in a democracy can make up their minds whether there's conservative evil, uh, liberal-slash-progressive evil, or simply unwise or wise policy choices that we can all look at, evaluate, discuss like people in a democracy. And so the whole basis of democracy is being um, is being disemboweled, if I could use that term. Uh, we do not have the basis for the democratic discussion that John Stuart Mill talked about so eloquently in 1835. We don't have any of that. That's the foundation of enlightenment democracies. Once you get rid of information for the public who is supposed to be making these decisions, and once, by the way, we go away from political parties making the decisions to more broad-based uh, electoral nomination of our candidates, which is a, a, a change from the past. So now we And have stakeholders. Stakeholders. Now we have millions and millions of people uh, uh, selecting our nominees as opposed to a few people who keep abreast of what's happening and so forth and so on. So it's very important that those millions of people that are voting in primaries and voting in the elections have information. And mm -hmm. I'm happy with the system if the public gets the information. And here we have all these means of communicating to the public, 
through the social media and uh, the internet, and yet it's not happening. Uh, there are most, what is it, 80%, I'd say, of the uh, media is either in coastal Northeast or perhaps to some degree in California. Everyone else is neglected, and those people who are in their echo chambers are the ones who are uh, reporting. Uh, these people do not have touch with most of America, don't have uh, and talk to each other. I understand that. Most people are not acting in bad faith. They really think they're doing the Lord's work. Uh, but when you read what they think and what they say, the closer you get, the more you realize that these folks are not really deep, critical thinkers. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, that's the way human beings are. We have a hurt mentality and, uh, and so forth. And um, so, and now, especially when you get into more liberal and progressive parties, uh, the notion is you're supposed to follow the party line. You're not supposed to debate and discuss. In the more traditional enlightenment part of society, you are supposed to discuss and debate. You are supposed to herd cats. It is supposed to be messy. But we don't have that now. One side of the fence is much better at unifying and giving a party line, and everyone has to accept it. So we have that uh, dangerous combination of a press that's one-sided and a political philosophy that encourages one-party rule. And you put all that together and you have a press that just, and a, a media, I should say, that is just not functional. You have people like you and I talking about this. Um, I hope we can spread the word through your podcast. And that's why I just so treasure talking to you, Victoria, because there are a few people like you that have active minds that are trying to inject some critical thinking into the uh, atmosphere here. But we don't have that, and it's, it, it's and it really bothers me. I don't mind um, if there's a Democratic uh, leadership in the country. But even at that, if there is, I think they would be more uh, responsive to the will of the people if there were better reporting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If the, if the media did its job, people would be more informed, and the politicians would have to respond. But because they don't, because none of the above is true— they just go on their merry way. It's uh, also informs uh, this current uh, issue over the House of Representatives and the new speaker and all that stuff. And, uh, well, we can't have, uh, you know, it, it, it's just, there should be debate. It can be messy, as you say. Right. Uh, it, and it's just being misconstrued, I believe. So, well, listen, yeah. it's been great talking to you. I'm it's obviously on my way here. But, Victoria, thank you so much for listening to me today and uh, go on and on on this, but this is, I think, an Thank important topic. No, it really is, because it, it informs us and in how we receive and um, look at news now, these days. So, Postgate by John O'Connor and the Mysteries of Watergate. Get them. Listen to his podcast. Really important to the health of our nation. John O'Connor, thank you very much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast, and let's do it again. Thanks, Victoria. Great talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app. 
every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.